This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Um, I will remember that my name is Roy Cross. I'll remember to tell you that. Um, I have the great pleasure of chairing Benicia and Yasmin Alibi-Brown, um, who are going to start by each spending five or ten minutes presenting your position or your case. It may not be a case, but... Um, and for once, I'm going to read my notes. Yasmin, by her own admission, is a lefty liberal, anti-racist, feminist, Shia Muslim, part Pakistani, and a very responsible person. <laughs> <clears throat> and my colleagues in the British Council's literature department say about Bidisha that she has managed over the last decade to translate her early notoriety into a more serious new profile. <laughs> so there you go, the two of you, yes? <laughs> I'm not sure you approve of that. Really. No, I like it. I'm you <laughs> like it, okay. Who wants to go first? Because we didn't arrange that, did no, we? I have no preference at all. Shall I? Go on, yes. Um, so we all know... Um, how the immigration migration debate has got once more poisonous. Uh, I think there is something cyclical here. Um, and the, the reason I wrote this book was partly because it's my answer, if you like, to Nigel Farage. Um, and because Ukipri is a largely English phenomenon. Maybe there are some secret ones here hiding in Scotland too, or a few in Wales. But actually, it's an English. Movement. When he came here, we locked him in a pub. <laughs> Actually, I have said to him myself, you know, Mr. Farage, you don't know your own nation. Your nation has never been small-minded, small-islander. Of course, it's part of it is, and, and there is a kind of very difficult story about England and the other. Um, but there's also, it's like the conjoined twins, you have one side, which is incredibly hostile to difference, and the other conjoined twin, which wants to embrace difference and sleep with it and eat its food. And, <laughs> and uh, there is this amazing... And, and actually, so I'll tell you very quickly why I decided that it was important. So there was the Farage phenomenon. I also used to get, for a long time, hideous emails from somebody... Uh, from the English Defence League. Appalling stuff, really offensive. But he would always end by saying, and you are a coward because you won't have coffee with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he had called me everything from a bastard child and threatened to put me on a boat with my bastard children, all this. And yet he wanted to have coffee with me. So I, say, I did a deal after a few months. Um, every time I put him into my um, uh, junk email, he would find another way of getting back. I mean, it was really uh, extraordinary. So I said, I'll have a coffee with you. You pay for yours and I pay for mine and I meet you for one hour and I never want to hear from you again. So we met and he carried on in the same way. Uh, are there any young children in the audience? No, I hope not. Um, England, my country has been a, a whore, she left her legs open, you know, you are the, the products, the, all this. 
so I, one hour, I said, thank you, I'm off. And he was well-dressed, well-spoken. He didn't tell me who he was. As I was leaving, I had my wedding bangles on. You know, we, when Asian women get married, you, we get bangles often from our mums or our grandmums, and they're gold. And I had four my wedding bangles on. So he grabbed my arm, and I was quite rattled by this. And he said, I like those bracelets. Where are they from? <laughs> and so I laughed. I said, look, even you, even you cannot avoid the glitter of the Orient, you see? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. And so the book comes out of that in a very personal story. I'm a Shia Muslim, a particular part of Shia Muslim uh, community, and uh, mainstream Muslims will not let our dead be buried in their graveyards. And so England has kind of shuffled up, you know, a little bit resentfully, but shuffled up in this absolutely beautiful burial ground called Brookwood in Surrey. You couldn't get more England than that. And so we are buried there, and that's where I will be buried. And as I was walking around, I'd gone to see, gone to my mum's grave. I can't find my father's grave. Um, I noticed that there was a plot given to the Zoroastrians a plot given to Ahmadi Muslims who are killed in many Muslim countries, um, as are my people. There were uh, 45 of, of Ismaili Muslims were slaughtered on a bus in Karachi just six, seven weeks ago. Then I noticed a plot for Latvian airmen. And so it goes on, and there's this kind of mosaic of the dead. And I thought, this is remarkable that England kind of has this capacity and there is this story to tell about England. Um, and when my mother was dying, uh, after first being shocked that I was going out with an Englishman who wore an earring and fuchsia pink shirt, <laughs> uh, and she said to me, you know, what are you doing with him? You know, uh, do you think the, I mean, these people don't understand family. She said, you know, okay, maybe at Christmas, okay, but really they don't know anything about family. But a week before she died, she said he should carry her coffin, her coffin. Um, and I had to persuade the elders to let a white man do this, because it never happens. Anyway, so the story of this book is partly that story, partly that the, telling the English in particular that you've always had immigrants. In fact, you're a mongrel race, yeah? And Daniel Defoe wrote a poem about it, and actually Africans were in England before the English were. Um, which really upsets them when I say this, but it's true <laughs> because they were in the Roman, uh, part of the Roman occupation. There have always been these problems. When the Huguenots came, the same story, they burnt their businesses, they set fire to their homes, Playwright wrote the, playwrights wrote these plays about an Englishman's work and place in his land and so on. And here's an interesting thing. Uh, um, uh, the king, the Protestant king, William of Orange, wanted to give them full rights, the emigres. And there was an MP called John Knight, uh, from Bristol, I think, St. John Knight, who wrote a pamphlet which said, um, throw out this uh, bill and throw out the foreigners. And Parliament actually had that pamphlet burned because they said, in this house, we do not talk in those terms. Look at us now. I mean, look at us now. Uh, and I'm sure Badisha will talk about it. And so it's gone on. The, 
you arrive, those who arrive have to go through this uh, kind of rite of fire. I come from Uganda. It was horrible when we came. Now, even Farage says, oh, we like the Ugandan nations. Yeah, they like them, because everybody except me became a millionaire uh, <laughs> and gives them money, you know. Uh, actually, it was awful. Enoch Powell was in his prime, and it was dreadful. But we had good people, good politicians. Peter Bottomley, um, um, uh, oh, God, I've forgotten his name. The Lib Dem no. leader. Which uh, one, Paddy? Or uh, no, no the, the one who got into a scandal. Jeremy Thorpe. Jeremy Thorpe. They even had people living with them. Uh, I remember I went to the camps, you know, citizens would bring coats and all sorts of things. So there's always been this tradition. And now, of course, it's the turn of the Lithuanians or Romanians, whoever, Africans and Eritreans. Um, and I'm not, an, I'm not, this is not, uh, actually Julian Barnes just said, gosh, you look just like you look. Well, yes. Uh, and, um, and then he, he said... He doesn't, does he? No. <laughs> and she, I said, I'm talking about England. Oh, I hope you're not going to be fierce. I said, no, I'm going to, it's a love letter, but it's also telling the hard story about what happened to all those people who've been and come and had this terrible time, but then always the people who loved them. 17, no, 1578 was the first panic in, in England about English women taking up with black lovers. Think about that. It never happened anywhere else. There's a very interesting history book to be written about English women and migration. That story would be very different from English men and migration, but that's, by the way. So the book, in part, celebrates everything from architecture, love, sex, food, trade, and so on, and also shows the dark side, you know, the racism, the anti-immigration rhetoric, and, and actually. So, 72, I was sitting in a park in Oxford, I got spat at. Seven months ago, eight months ago, on a number nine bus on High Street, Ken, for the second time ever in my life here, I got spat at again by a 50-something-year-old woman. So things are bad again. But I have to keep hope alive, otherwise I'd die. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, I, I hope I can provide the perfect compliment to what you've just said, because it's what I'm about to say I hope will build on that, although a uh, message for Julian Barnes, if you don't like Fierce, the exit's over there. Um, <laughs> something like that happened to me two, five days ago, so ten paces out of my hotel, for the first time ever in my life, a woman suddenly screamed at me. I wish I could do the accent, because it was really good with the accent. Uh, who are you looking at in disdain, you foreign cunt? I, was, I know. I don't know. I didn't take it personally because, of course, it wasn't personal, was it? This person doesn't know me. I didn't even see her face. I must have walked past her and she screamed it at my shoulder. And I just saw her walking away from me. And she was clearly, visibly someone who hadn't had the most advantageous life in the world. I certainly wasn't going to run after her and say something. I'm not a foreign cunt. I'm not foreign. I'm not a cunt either. But I wasn't going to say that. But I did also think my God, where did all of that hatred and mistrust come from? And why has it taken me so long on this planet for something like that to happen? Because it's never happened before. And 
what I wanted to say really was not to talk about migration as such, but to make a distinction between migration, which is what my mother did, post-war England was desperate for knowledge workers, desperate, and my mother's background is in maths and physics, and they really needed scientists, and talk about forced migration, which is what happens when you are a refugee or an asylum seeker. And these are very different things, and what's happening in the debate at the moment, which terrifies me, is that these things are becoming completely conflated. So you have refugees and asylum seekers. Last year in the UK, only 30,000 asylum applications were made, of which less than 50 were accepted, although some were overturned on appeal. It's a very low number. And then you have migration, which is quite legitimately people coming to not just work in hotels and be waitresses and cooks and cleaners, but also be doctors, be students, and all the rest of it, as indeed we are able to do, and which is legal. We know from our research that the overwhelming majority of all people like this, not just the overwhelming majority, you know, more than 90%, immediately settle, buy houses, pay taxes, and do all the stuff that you do. But the debate around these issues has become incredibly poisonous. And I do think that Farage was the beginning of it. And at the time, perhaps lots of people on the left thought, this is one of these flashpoints. It's a joke. He's a joke. And it'll go away. And instead of that happening, you could imagine Theresa May and David Cameron sitting there going, oh, he's on to something. Yeah, so let's just take his ideas, wrap them up into a more palatable package, and resell them to a seemingly mainstream audience. So. I, I didn't want to come here to sell copies of, of a book, but what I will say very briefly is that in the last few years, I've been doing outreach work, super crunchy, hardcore outreach work in underfunded, unheated charities with asylum seekers and refugees who came from Iran, Iraq, Cameroon, Syria, you name it. But the time I was doing it was before the refugee crisis from Syria and sub-Saharan Africa that we're seeing today. So these were people from all over the world, nearly all of them educated up to the age of 18, most of them educated beyond that, and surviving on about three or four pounds a day. It's easy to think that you could do that because you forget that you already have your mortgage in your house, but imagine if you are just, just surviving on three or four pounds on the kindness of strangers, in this case not individual strangers, but strangers who work for charities. And every single one had fled something. It's not always an active war zone. It can be a fragile state, which is what happens three decades after you've had a war and civil society's broken down, law and order's broken down, there's no adequate education that you'd want to give your kids. Um, you might, in some cases, have the uprising of armed militia groups and things like that. So there's no future in a place like that. Or simply, abject poverty. Seeking asylum is a human right. That is enshrined in human rights law, and it's very telling that Cameron's government, I think if they had their way, they would simply abolish human rights law. And it's terrifying that that's even a discussion now. And they were trying to survive. If you're an asylum seeker, you don't have any recourse to public funds. So the argument that people come, o come over here and they take, 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 take isn't true. Actually, what happens is you are relying on charities for the absolute basics. You are living in one room that you would not put 
a dog or a cat in. So no one's taking these lovely glossy houses. There's the housing crisis because the government is not investing in good housing, social housing, housing for families. They keep building beautiful apartments for zhuzhi rich people to live in in the centre of town when most people need family homes. They're not building that. Same goes for the NHS, same goes for schools. But as we were saying, it's very easy to scapegoat foreigners. And it always, exactly as Yasmin was saying, it always happens, if you look back over 200 years, at times of economic instability and growing domestic inequality. Suddenly you go, oh, who did this? Who did this? And instead of saying, well, it's our policies that did it, you say, foreigners are doing it. These foreign people who will never understand, they're coming from far away. They, it's very convenient because at the end of the day, who is willing to look up the, the roots of the Syrian conflict, or the roots of what's happening in Eritrea. So that's what's happening. And, you know, you could almost say that's fine, but at the moment, the Syrian civil war, which is out uh, completely and overwhelmingly a humanitarian crisis, which the rest of the world has taken their hands off, and all the other wars which are happening, have created a refugee crisis. And this is a humanitarian issue. It's not to do with money. It costs much more money to build detention centers and partition walls and to pay police officers who are really angry for some reason, I don't know why they're angry, with tear gas and to get uh, the staff to coral thousands of refugees into an arena in Greece in the middle of the day where they're going to faint from exposure than it is to meaningfully process and settle people. Uh, I'm going to close there. I have hundreds of stories which I could share, but in <laughs> fact, I can leave them in the book. But I'll end with one of the people who was sitting on my right when I began the, the uh, workshops. His name was Claude, and we started to do one of these very simple writing exercises you do. So we wrote home on the blackboard, and he suddenly flared up. And he said, home, what is home? You ask me what my home is. I have no home. I'm like a yo-yo, a traveling man. If I had a daughter on the day that I came here, she would now be 11 years old. I've been in limbo for 11 years. This guy had a degree in criminology, would be much better off using the degree in criminology than languishing in this strange limbo. And I touch on that in the book because the asylum system is not, it's extremely brutal, it's designed to put you off, but it's also a system that doesn't work. So all of the people I worked with were in this grey zone. Un you're not allowed to work as an asylum seeker. And if there's one thing I could change, I would just say, exactly. well, enable people to work. Yeah. This is a very simple thing. They really want to do. They're desperate to work. But they're in this grey area. And all of them then worked in the grey economy. Uh, I'll close there just on a note of just fear and worry about what's happening in England, in Western Europe, in Europe at the moment and to thank you for making this a sold out event because <laughs> I didn't think that it was going to happen. I thought that you and I would be speaking to our five fans who come to everything. <coughs> you know, the ones that we see, we come to everything. And I thought people are going to take their hands off this issue. I didn't expect yeah. it to be sold out. So I, I'll end by thanking you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm never quite sure what morning it was <clears throat> when I hear something on the Today programme because I tend to sort of listen and drift in and out of sleep. But I think it was this morning that they told us that there's new legislation down south which will make it illegal to employ somebody whose status you haven't checked. The previous defence of saying, well, I didn't know, will no longer apply. You have to... which will make it even more difficult for people to work. It will make it more difficult, but in fact... 
so many of the employers in the grey economy are themselves in the grey zone that it won't actually make a difference That's to labour <laughs> to labour exploitation. So all the people who are employing fruit pickers yeah. and factory workers are themselves undeclared employers. So um, exploited labour is good to go, basically. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, so it'll, it'll affect medium-sized, very legitimate companies, but the exploitation but won't end. Not the bulk, not mm. the bulk. Yeah. I lived in Stockholm for a while and had quite often the same taxi driver who had a PhD, a British PhD, um, but that was when he was back home in Iraq, um, and had lived in Stockholm for 10 years, had a very, very severely disabled son who I'm absolutely sure was getting much, much better care in Stockholm than he would have done had they come to the UK. And every time we met, he would say, but I want to go to the UK. I want to go to London. Can't you fix it for me? And I said, well, look, I don't understand. Why do you want to go to London where I'm sure you won't get care for your son? He said, I want to go to London because everybody is a foreigner there. <laughs> and all these guys at Calais... Yes, I mean, why, are, why do people still want to come? What is so special? Is it what you've got in your book? Is it still survived? Well, it is, the... and it's the, you know, the, the long relationship. You can't have a history. You can't make a history and decide one Tuesday at 10.30 to snip that history off and cast it ashore, you know, on the seas. There are connections. There are deep connections between the United Kingdom and the rest of the world. And okay, a good deal of it was very exploitative and wrong, and it impoverished the countries um, that uh, the, the British went into and so on. But at the same time, there are these deep links of language for a start. There are people they know who are... Um, and it, it's true that you can be belong. I never felt I belonged anywhere in my life before I lived in London. Because I grew up as an Asian in Africa, not an African, not a European. I don't know what I thought I was. But I had that sense from a very young age I didn't belong anywhere. Mm -hmm. I had nowhere, I'd never lived anywhere where people didn't have the right to say, go back where you came from. They said it in Africa, they say it here. London is a city where you can belong. And actually, in the book I've quoted... Wordsworth and Addison and other writers who have described this London full of foreigners mm -hmm. who make it their own place. So that is one reason. If they're not coming, as, as Bidisha says, not for the benefits and the wonderful council houses that we have, but the, the sense that you can set down roots because there is something that connects you with the country. Mm -hmm. Whereas Sweden is always going to be a, f a foreign land uh, for many of them. Um, just to pick up on that, that's, that's absolutely, completely, utterly, exactly right. I just came back from being in Stockholm last weekend, and I was speaking to an amazing woman there who's a black British woman who... This is so Swedish, it's untrue. She teaches deaf theatre in Sweden, so she knows Swedish <laughs> sign language. And it's, in, it's sort of amazing to watch. But um, I said to her, listen, sh she's about late 50s, early 60s, really cool political woman. I said to her, listen, tell me honestly, what's happening in this, in this country? And she said, well, what's the stereotype that you know? And I said, well, it's wonderfully, the stereotype is a wonderfully egalitarian place. And she said, not on race. 
definitely on gender, or at least the discourse is there, not on race, because Sweden's colonial history isn't this highly developed, complex thing. So anyone who's visibly different will always be visibly different. And she described the growing, not anger, but the disenchantment mm -hmm. of young, non-white Swedish people who were growing up and how they were becoming more and more politicized. I don't mean radicalized, I mean politically aware, because they thought, hang on, I, I am Swedish, I speak it fluently, I've lived here all my life, and yet somehow I, I can't get this job. Or I want to be a playwright, but even though the, you know, the playwright festival is full of 50 men and 50 women, it's all completely one, there's one non-white person, and they still are seen as being African or Indian or something else. So the discourse wasn't there. Uh, and I mean, England has a lot to answer for. <laughs> and you were very, very diplomatic. But the truth is that due to English colonialism, at one point in history, 84% of the globe was uh, exploited and run Absolutely. and administered yeah. by the English, who themselves suddenly had no problem with migration when they were doing it. Well, you even know. now, even now. They even thought they were expats or, you know, know, come, you know coming along to clean up. Wouldn't it be hilarious if a load of Africans came to England and said, hello, 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 we are going to clean up this mess for you people. And it people. still happens. And it's, exactly it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that Scotland needs to tell about itself too. Because this idea that the colonial and slavery story was entirely English is, of course, wrong. Uh, you know, so it's something that we all need to say. Um, I have had to confront the racism of my own family and my community towards black people. You know, a reason we were thrown out of Uganda wasn't just because of a brutish black man. It's because we were deeply and continue to be deeply racist towards black. So we all have to confront that. But this is the, the, the interesting thing, is I was in Tuscany uh, just two weeks ago, staying with some friends who've just bought a house there, um, British, white British friends. And we went out for dinner one night, and everybody was from the, the kind of migrant or whatever, their holiday home community. <laughs> and one woman, who was frightfully rich, has a house in Verbier and whatever, said, oh, I hate that multiculturalism of Britain. Um, so I said, so do you speak Italian then, darling? And she said, oh, no. So I said, so it's okay to have that multiculturalism in Tuscany, yeah. but it's not okay if, if you know, they say, oh, you do have a point. Oh. <laughs> We should be directing lots of asylum seekers to her house since she likes it so much. And yes. <laughs> uh, exactly. So when a Brit goes abroad, they're an expat or an international oh, or some, uh -huh. sort of, some sort of elevated term. But this issue about multiculturalism is exactly, sorry, briefly, exactly what's so scary because I think that everything to do with the way uh, European governments are treating asylum seekers... I think that subconsciously the end point is for them to say, we tried multiculturalism, it didn't work. Yeah. And that's what really frightens me, that at some point uh, the government is going to make that explicit. They're going to somehow conflate ISIS and Boko Haram and jihadi stuff with asylum seekers and refugees, with Polish students who want to become a doctor in the UK, and they're going to bundle it all up together and go, you know what, you people make too much trouble. But, you know, there is a point uh, that we have to confront. I mean, as a Muslim, I have to confront this point, that there are young Muslims, often middle-class Muslims, educated, uh, who've, whose parents and grandparents made a life for themselves, 
who, for various reasons, are turning not just... They have no politics. Yeah. They have no political resistance. You know, as the older I get, the more socialist I get, the more angry I become about the inequality of, between all citizens, not just migrants and, and others. Um, and instead, they, they truly become um, kind of filled with hate for the country in which they live. And I often say to them, so where would you live? You are so unhappy here, okay? So where, why don't you go to a Muslim country where you'd be happier? And the last time I said that was in Bradford. It was very funny because they were so angry. They were so angry with me because I was showing my legs and whatever. And, um, <laughs> and they put their hands up. They're around 20, 22 years old. Oh, but miss, but miss, we can't be speaking like this over there. Exactly. So we all, you know, there is, the, but you're so right that to blame the asylum, desperate asylum seekers, um, or to put it all on them. Do you know one figure that I found out when I was writing a book several years ago? There are more American migrants in the UK than there are Jamaicans. <laughs> now, how many people knew that? Do we talk about American migrants? Because they came, a lot of them came to... Coming the, over here, Bush stealing all our yes. food, and our women. eating yes. all of our yes. food. Bush here, yes. they, they were kind of exiles from Bush. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And they never went back. And we, I'm very happy that they stayed. But let's be fair to the others too, really. So they're political refugees. Yeah? Well, they're kind of political <laughs> refugees. <laughs> Your husband annoyed you by saying that your book, I think, was a treasure trove of all sorts of interesting stuff. No, he was being horrible. Um, right. as he I'd like to repeat that, sort of. Yes. By one of the things I took from it, who's heard of Mohammed Osborne? <laughs> Mohammed Osborne? Who is Mohammed Osborne? The brother of our delightful Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> he has a brother who's a convert to Islam. He and kept that one incredibly quiet. Well, <laughs> and he's married to a Bangladeshi, and there, are, there used to be, I don't know if they, I looked at, I remembered, when I was writing class, I remembered seeing these images in the Express or one of the tabloid newspaper with his turban and the flowers around his neck and his kurta and so on. Couldn't find the images. You know how you can now get rid of things from Google? They'd, they've disappeared, but, he, and, but then he got into a lot of trouble because he's a bit of a how shall I say, a uh, uh, rule breaker. He's a doctor or a psychiatrist, and he got into trouble because he was importing or selling drugs, uh, med medicinal drugs, and so on. So, colorful character, but a Muslim nevertheless. Yeah. The son of John Burt, the son of uh, Frank Dobson, um, they're all Muslims. And actually, they're very incredibly informed Muslims. Is, is that a cause for optimism? Because if you've got yeah. family who are yeah. Muslim and Muslim converts, does that not influence your policy? Can you not sort of pause for thought before you introduce legislation? No, not George no. Osborne. Do you no. think George no. Is he even real? I mean, I think he's a, one of those robots, you know, that you see uh, in, in sci-fi films. That they're going to take off their face and there'll be lizards underneath yes. or something. He'll probably deport me. <laughs> deport us now. Exactly. We've probably broken some we'll probably, law we'll as we probably speak. just be shot by drones on the way out. We'll never make it to the book signing at the end. 
Um, we'll wake up in Guantanamo wearing really unflattering orange jumpsuits. Um, I wanted to come back to something that you said about the, the scapegoating of refugees because I, and about the NHS, because I, I, think it's, I, I think the party line is hilarious, which is that these people have come here and risked everything. You know, you see people dying in boats, for goodness sake. They don't even have one bag, not even one rucksack. And you have little kids, so there's no formula for babies. There's no food for the children. Nobody does that unless they're completely Absolutely. desperate. Nobody risks death or detention. And that is completely obvious, right? You or I would not leave everything unless there was nothing to live for here. And we see those images. So it's not as though this is something happening in secret that's a mystery. And I don't understand how governments and the people who support that line can look at those images and then come away thinking, doing that double think, that very twisty-turny double think where you come out at the end and you go, oh no, they're here to do something bad or they're here yeah. to take from us. It's a failure of rationality and basic humanity. But it's because I really do feel there are some very good people across the UK who are deeply ashamed of what their government is doing yeah. and that the opposition yeah. is <laughs> so appalling. And the opposition, the Labour Party, absolutely should look at itself in yeah. the mirror because yeah. when you don't have an opposition to this thing, this is what happens. Um, so just so that to really pay homage to the good people who are feeling this, there's a group in, um, Gat, uh, in um, near Dover, Dover uh, which visits the detainees in Gatwick. Now, they're detained indefinitely, which is a form of torture. They do yeah. not know what they've done, and they do not know when their cases will be heard. So these people, in that very kind of fraught part of the country, mm -hmm. go and visit them. And they did something extraordinary in June, and none of the papers covered it. I didn't even know it was happening until they invited me to compare the final evening. So here's what they did for Refugee Week. 95 of them, friends of Gatwick detainees, did a pilgrimage 95 miles. They walked from Dover to Crawley, and they got poets and writers like Ali Smith and so on to visit the detainees, to write poems and stories of the detainees. So it was like a, a replaying of the pilgrim's progress. And on the final night at a theatre in Crawley, we had a kind of finale where uh, there were little plays around the stories and, and Ali Smith spoke. 750 white people, I, make, I emphasize that, turned up. So I don't think all the people have been, um, but in the absence of any other narrative, I mean, I'm absolutely shocked by the BBC. The BBC's narratives on migration really have left me feeling, I, I love the BBC, I would defend it, but it has now become so, so uh, kind of determined to give us that side of the story that they never give us the other side that you're talking about. And I think, so people have been brainwashed, actually. Yeah. Or are they scared? Why? They're scared, of course, because they, you know, the, the poor hate the poor in our country. Somehow they've managed to get to a situation where people living in the worst housing now hate each other, and then television programs are made about you know, benefits people and so It's terrible. Social cohesion has been systematically yeah, destroyed. Absolutely. 
Um, I just want to pick up on that. So it's one of the Home Office's tactics when they're forced to house an asylum seeker or refugee to put them into those areas that they know through their research are the most UKIPI areas yeah. and to isolate people. So to really? make them... F yes. <laughs> so to make them feel as though when they come out on the street they are tangibly not welcome. People are giving them a double look. People are spitting at them or people are making a comment to them that they don't like. The entire system is designed to discourage you, to put you off. I've done outreach work in Dover Detention Centre and I wanted to say a tiny little bit about that because if you commit a crime in the UK as a UK citizen and you're put in prison, you have rights. In a prison you have the right to make a phone call, you've got a right to legal aid. If you're detained in a, as an asylum seeker, you don't have any rights. You don't have a, a right to even make a phone call. Every single one of the asylum seekers you'll speak to in, do, in a detention centre will say the same thing. It's a line that keeps cropping up. I didn't do anything wrong, and yet you treat me like a criminal. This, this, and this happened to me in my home country, but I never felt as low as when I was sitting on the bench outside the detention centre. So at Dover Detention Centre, I met the scariest angriest staff you've ever met in your life. It's the same way, you know how sometimes care homes attract abusers because they know they can abuse with impunity? Oof. It was like that. The first thing I saw at Dover Detention Center was a woman cleaning her hand with hand sanitizer. As, you know, it's so Freudian, isn't it? As though the people she's dealing with are literally dirty. And she was saying to me, this is the head of education, she said, oh, you know, these guys, these guys, these detainees, they, I told them to come to your class, but, you know, they sleep until 3 p.m. And I said, sleeping late is a sign of depression. And she laughed with relish. It was ghoulish. It was so interesting. But she and probably thinks she's a great person doing a... No, 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 I don't think so. There's a distinction because... Uh, people who work in the prison system, UK prison system, the civilian staff tend to often be extremely caring, and there is some sense of pastoral care. Detention centres are run by private companies like Serco and G4S. Some people work in these places as a career, so they go from different uh, detention to different detention centre, and they work their way up in the hierarchy. It's not that everyone's abusive, mm -hmm. but the culture is abusive. So it just takes one or two bullies for the entire culture to be depressed in that way. So, no, I think they really enjoyed being in a position... These are small people, small-souled people. But isn't they enjoyed it, being Bidisha, in a position isn't, of power. Doesn't it depress you that we who were migrants, or our parents were migrants, so many people with this history have turned so harshly against incomers? Well, uh, let me tell you, you know, something. I, I yeah. can't bear it that we Asian, Ugandan Asians, some of, you know, to listen to Preeti Patel the terrible Tory talking in terms of those migrants and the, I cannot believe that you can do this when it's your story that you can't remember what it was like for your parents. I find that almost the most depressing thing since the election that so many even voted for UKIP. Yeah. Honestly. I spoke to an Eritrean woman who had f fled forced conscription and she had been in one of these classic lorries and you have to put a plastic bag over your head and I realise it's so that the sniffer dogs can't sense your breath. And uh, she practically died, fainted in the lorry. At the end of these lorry journeys, they just dump you out anywhere. She had no idea where she was. She didn't know what, what country it was. It was England. She didn't know and she couldn't speak a word of English. And she just wondered until she found another black person. And she was like, how is that? And he pointed towards this building. It was a detention centre. 
She was distraught. She was beating herself on the head. No, no, no. And the thing that she said was most awful was that the nurse was a black British woman. The nurse. And the nurse leant over and said, if you carry on like that, I'm going to tell them you're mad and we're going to section you. Just really quiet, just in her ear. And even telling the story three years later, she, her eyes were pouring with tears. She said, I, never, I will never forgive that woman. I will never forgive her for that cruelty she showed just in the moment where she could show a tiny bit of kindness or be neutral. But she had one funny story, which was in the detentions, and she was crying and screaming. She wanted, and they gave her a cup of dirty water. And uh, when she got better at English, she realized it was actually milky tea. <laughs> she was like, I'm not, I'm not touching that. That's disgusting. I'm not touching it. But yeah, and she now, as do so many asylum seekers, she works on making life a bit better for asylum seekers. And every single one of my students wanted to pay it forward. But this, I think what happens with my people with a migratory background who then do well, it's sort of like kick the dog, isn't it? It's things were hard for me and I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And why should it be easy for you? Yeah, and, but it's not acceptable. No, and it's I not. Think some, it's completely wrong. Some people are very good. I mean, I go to the soup kitchen sometimes where, um, you know, the asylum seekers waiting for decisions. They're not in detention. They have no food. They have no shoes. They walk two miles to come to the soup kitchen. And again and again, I've noticed that a lot of the people there are um, children of Jewish migrants. Uh, there's a very strong tradition, which I so admire, that there, there are still a lot of Jewish people in Britain who have never forgotten. I mean, a Jewish man gave me a home rent-free for seven years when I came from Uganda, and the only thing he said to me was, look, I've been there, yeah. okay? I know what it feels like. And that's what we also need to happen. But I do also feel very optimistic. You know, you ask people, um, you know, would you live anywhere else? When I've been doing the book festivals, I ask a lot of people who were migrants or children of migrants, and 90% of the audience says, no, this is what, where we want to live. So there's something mm -hmm. about this, the, the, the United Kingdom that actually, you know, whether it's real or imagined, is still something people love. And, uh, you know, On that slightly more positive note than some of the previous notes, let's turn to the audience who I hope might be going to say that Scotland is slightly different to the England that we've largely... Well, the Scottish refugee policy is different, and about a thousand times better, frankly. Uh, who's got the mic? So here in the front row to start with. Yeah. Mm. About balance to the BBC, I do want to say they did a Songs of Praise from Cali yes. the yes, other yes, week, yes, yes. and Giles Fraser was interviewed and praised. That's just for balance. <laughs> Thank you. You're right. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Uh, one here, yeah. Mm. Hi, um, I'm an Australian living in Berlin because I am escaping Abbott's Australia. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that I have a lot of uh, empathy for the bush refugees in London. Um, but leaving Australia, which is so gut-wrenchingly conservative, to the point of weeping every night you watch the news and then hearing you say so many things that are happening in Australia as well. It's 
frankly, incredibly depressing. So what, what can we bring that is optimistic to this? What will bring change and what can we do to help? Great question. Thank you. Yes. A uh, fantastic question. I second your feelings about Abbott. And in fact, I, I was almost thinking, again, it's very interesting what happens when you decide to not take a politician seriously. So when Abbott first started saying all of this very isolationist stuff about, you know, if, if you're going to come here in a boat, you may die and we're not going to save you. I thought, this, this, is, not going to, this is not going to wash. There'll be an outcry. And in fact, what we saw happening was Western powers taking a cue, taking their cue from that and saying, my God, he did it and he got away with it. And he's instructed his naval It's an effective officers. policy. Yes, exactly. Yes. It's, it's, it's horrendous. The answer is that we have to create the counter-narrative. And we do that actually by the, yes. participating in events like this, by asking questions. But the thing I would urge everyone in the audience to do, you don't even have to do voluntary work, is to just have a conversation about this with one other person. We'll get it out there. I agree completely with Yasmin that because the images have been so bad and because the political line is so obviously inhumane, oddly enough, I feel that there's a groundswell of yeah. mainstream, ordinary, and decent human people's support. Looking at all of these people dying in boats, which is an image I hate. I don't like this de dehumanized, unnamed, anonymous people d dying presented for you to cry at. But people are saying, this can't be right. Because no one does this unless they're desperate. So creating counter-narratives, and yes, outreach, though I hate to say it, outreach work does work, mm. because the charities that I work with um, are severely underfunded, so they've been hit very heavily by the anti-austerity measures and by all the cuts which have happened against charities and against social services and against legal aid, so that's a triple whammy that hits asylum seekers and refugees. And then cuts to housing, cuts to all kinds of benefits, means that all of these people are in serious risk of destitution. So whatever you're good at, whether it's law, healthcare, teaching, use that skill. Just help one other person. That's what I'd say. Um, I was at a debate in the Scottish Parliament last week, the Festival of Politics. And the debate was uh, on the Commonwealth, and the Secretary General of the Commonwealth, a very urbane Indian gentleman, was there. And I just said to him very simply, you run the Commonwealth. What have you said to Australia? And what have you said to Cameron about the language they're using and the treatment of uh, incomers? Do you only speak up when it's a black man in Africa doing some wrong? Do you not ever use your power to actually do the... On, because their charter is magnificent. You'd stick it, I'd stick it on the wall of my granny if I had one. You know, it's got all these beautiful embroidered things on it. And he didn't have anything to say to that. And so I pushed him. And he said, well, we are talking about, yes, yes, we're having meetings about, you know, what to do about this migration um, language and treatment by Commonwealth countries. And, and so there, we have to push these organizations um, to say and do something. And the other really important thing is many of the people who are fleeing are fleeing because of our foreign policies. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And what, you, you go into Iraq, you destroy Iraq, and then you say, bye, nothing to do with me, boss, excuse me. Um, we are still selling arms to the worst tyrants in the world. Um, and we are not stopping Saudi Arabia 
which is an evil empire. I mean, we had our flags at half-mast for that bastard who died. Sorry. It's a matter of national security, um, you must understand. <laughs> so, unless, you know, as a population, as a democracy, if we use our individual power with our individual MPs to say, once you have created havoc, we have a responsibility to the people who are then the collateral damage of those actions. Gentleman in the middle with white hair and black glasses, being very patient. No, no, just here, sorry, down a bit. This gentleman here. Have you, did you still want to ask you a question? Yes, yes. Sorry. And we'll come back to the... Yeah. Straightly, it's a great panel. I get emotional on this subject because I've always been interested in racism, racism and inequality. And I've got to say, away from, uh, say, in Edinburgh and the golf courses, they still come out with, the white man gets a rough deal in this country. And, of course, I've got steam coming out of my ears at that uh, stage. And I was going to ask you about um, how much do, can we blame Blair for what's going on in the Middle East, which yeah, is yeah. absolutely horrible. Yeah. The suffering there is just desperate. And can I just mention, when you mentioned uh, Osborne, uh, it made me think back to um, Thatcher's daughter. Um, they took, they tested her DNA and found out, yeah. They found, well, we don't know where we all came from, eh? Well, we all came from You're Africa. about to tell me that Carol yeah. Thatcher's black, aren't you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> they, they came from North Africa, would you believe? And yeah. she just says, oh, her brother had got, that, uh, sorry, her brother had got um, uh, lost in a car thing. And she says, oh, well, you should have known better. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but let, Was it Blair's fault? And the, pass that microphone to the lady, the white hair behind you. And, yep. And, but answer the questions now. Yeah, yeah so, so I think that's a really important point that, um, you know, I get a lot of, oh, the real victims now are white working class people. And I say to them, they, the, all these, the, you know, Farage and others have managed to divide the working classes. There was a time when the working classes were the working classes and there were black people, Asian people. I mean, the film East is East showed you how connected everybody was. Um, so they've managed to do that. But the other thing is this DNA story. In the book, there's a fantastic story of how slaves were taken from the southern coastline of England. So when they, when they say English have never been slaves, they have been. So they were taken during the 16th century by Ottoman pirates and Navy people. And they were taken to North Africa, many of them, and to uh, Istanbul. In fact, at one point, the most powerful man in Istanbul was Hassan Aga, who was a eunuch, who was actually an Englishman from Great Yarmouth, who had his <laughs> bits cut off for reasons, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. So then uh, Charles II sent a, 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 an ambassador, Mr. Uh, Mr. Hamilton, with a, bags of money to get these cap, uh, the captives back. And something like 30% said, no, thank you. We're all right having here. a really good time here. The cushions are softer. The women are nicer. And actually, Hamilton wrote down, they have abandoned their nation for the love of Turkish women. Full stop. <laughs> Turkish women are indeed very beautiful. <laughs> and I won't be so there's back. a DNA <laughs> test to be yes, done. Yes, yes. Um, Do you want to... Yes? Yeah, on, no, no, on Blair, of course, you're absolutely right. 
the short, ver short answer to the question about whether he'll ever be tried for war crimes, I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's not that I don't think he's a war criminal, I do, but he's a rich white man who's very well connected behind the scenes. He's not enough of a pariah for the rest of the international community to go in on persecuting him. So although I would love to see that happen, just to see, because what we want is to see the whites of his eyes, isn't it? That's what we really, we want to sort of get him and go, what the hell do you think you're doing? Iraq and Afghanistan were illegal, unnecessary wars. Not only that, millions of people all over the world marched against them. And you and your friend, you know, ever si you know, since then, America has ditched England. They don't really want to be friends with us because Obama is quite isolationist. Um, you and your friend wanted to kill some people, so you got together and you sacrificed some young British soldiers and hundreds and thousands of Afghan and Iraqi civilians for fun to make yourselves feel like really big men, which is what happened. So, yes, I think that we can lay a lot at his door, but exactly as but Yasmin's But we need been now saying, to stop them selling arms. Yeah. They're still selling arms. They're selling arms to all the Middle Eastern tyrants, to the tyrants in Asia. To, and it's shocking, it's absolutely shocking to me that we n say nothing. I mean, the last time there was, an, do you even remember those wonderful women who camped for years against the American um, presence in, um, in Britain, the, the we big weaponry? What happened to that spirit? We're, they're still arming them. I, uh, well, Let the answer, well, can I, can go I on just... On it's, it's one of those really sick things about global capitalism, isn't, isn't it? So we sit there and we go up to the government and you go and we say, listen, there's a humanitarian crisis on. And they go, yes, yes, we know. And then we say, why are you selling arms and oil and doing all of this trading? And they say, oh, no, no, that's just business. Because under global capitalism, all business, if something is monetized, it's okay. Yeah. And you can't criticize it because then you're some sort of naive liberal do-gooder who doesn't understand how the real right. world works. When Jeremy it, Corbyn, yeah, you mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> lady, lady in possession of the mic, we've got lots of people. Andrew, very quick. Quick yeah. question, yes. quick answers. Hello. I hope this doesn't sound like trivial nitpicking, um, but I wonder when both of you refer to England and the English, do you really mean England and the English? Yeah, we or do. Or yeah. Britain and the British? Or are you differentiating between the Scots and Scotlands? I'd like to think that you are. Yes, yes. we are. Not. No, we but are. But my book is <laughs> actually deliberate. on England. But I, I do refer to the Scots. And I, like I said, the story of slavery yes. and empire, yeah. the Scots have kind of neatly forgotten because a little uh, bit. Lo yeah. lots, no, but I do mean England. Because 93% right. of migrants live in England. Yes. OK, that's fine. I, I, do I like think they've think both written about what they know, which is largely England. Yes, it? absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. Also, uh, and also, the interesting thing is, we had said that we wouldn't get party political. But actually, I think that right now, a lot of the crisis of the rhetoric has to be laid specifically at David Cameron and Theresa May's feet. Swarms, and so swarms. we're being small swarms of marauding migrants. That way to your left, sorry. Yeah. And, that, and we'll get over there for one, I think, before we... Quick question, quick answers. Yasmin, you mentioned the word shame. And there's something about shame to me. I grew up in South Africa, and I was at... I didn't know how to be ashamed because that's where I grew up. That was normal. And I wonder whether that's what's happening here. We've forgotten how to be ashamed. Oh, great question. And how do we teach shame? <laughs> how can we be proud of being ashamed? Because I think we need to be, to be so shocked and so ashamed that we do something. 
It's a very good question. Fantastic a very question. good question. Fantastic um, question. I know a good deal of, uh, lots of people feel it. You know, I get hundreds and hundreds of letters. And often the letters are from older people, handwritten, stamped letters. And I can't tell you how many of those people say, I feel so ashamed. So there is shame, but how... It, you're right. Guilt and shame was kind of uh, banished, in a way, from the public space. But it needs to be brought back. And, but I, I don't think it's... You know, I think also to emphasize, look, when you behaved better, look what happened. Look how the Jewish people settled. Look how they changed the country. You got the Olympics on this, and now look at you. You, you sold this story about the country to get the Olympics, and now you've turned your back on the best that is uh, there about you, and you've become this mean place again. So I think it's there, mm -hmm. but we don't have the political leaders at all at the moment expressing that. Last word to you, Vidisha. I was going to say, it's not just about guilt and shame. For me, it's also about faith. I think what happens when you have a leadership that you can't believe in is a little part of your mind says, oh, that's it, they're awful people, I can't do anything. And I think what I want people to go away with is yeah. the feeling that actually, if the world can transform for the worse, it can transform for the better. And the worst thing that we can do is be complacent about the downward slide that we're on. It's possible to change the discourse, but we have to do that ourselves through our own actions, our own messages, and our own outreach work. And of course, because we have no power, we're doing it with few resources. But that's the only thing in the world that's going to make a change and change the narrative. We have to change the narrative ourselves through our actions, and not just through our words. Thank you. And I'll be And complain to the BBC when it's very <laughs> one-sided. <laughs> we, we have to finish now. I'm very sorry if you haven't had a chance to ask your question. Come to the bookshop. Free question with every book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's just say thank you again. Thank you. And there are some badges here. Please take these. Give them out with your books when you sign them. There are some little stickers that were given to me last night. Uh, the wonderful show called um, Migrant dreams or stories at the assembly rooms. Yeah, come and, and take a sticker. And they gave me these, and I think we should all wear them. So I've got one on. Dishia's <laughs> got one on. I've just put mine in my diary, but we'll get them there. Oh, right. get so More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.